Welcome to the first episode of Future Tongues, a podcast about linguistics and how language is changing. I'm your host, Aaron Zhu. In this first episode of the podcast, I want to introduce you to a new linguistic development in Germany that has caught my attention. If you and I were to fly over to Germany and we stopped to stand in very specific neighborhood corners in big cities and really tuned our ears in, we could hear a distinct new way of using the German language. A way that is distinct in that the great majority of the 220 million German speakers on this planet are not using it. The way of speaking I'm talking about is called Kiezdeutsch. Kiezdeutsch is one example of what linguists call a multi-ethnolect. It's not quite a dialect. A multi-ethnolect is created by speakers from various linguistic backgrounds and by younger people, typically no older than the age of 30. Europe has many multi-ethnolects across several countries, and Germany's multi-ethnolect in particular is called Kiezdeutsch. I first read about Kiezdeutsch in an Atlantic article written by John McWhorter titled How Immigration Changes Language. It immediately struck me when I learned that here was this particular group of Germans who spoke standard German but were also speaking something else. They had a second tool in their toolkit. You couldn't find something analogous to this in suburban New Jersey. Even as the state is among the most ethnically and linguistically diverse in the nation. In fact, you couldn't find something analogous to Kiezdeutsch anywhere in the United States. To live in the United States is to speak English pretty much everywhere. The second thing that struck me was that I, as a student of German for nearly seven years now, saw this Kiezdeutsch multi-ethnolect as utterly unconventional for the prim and proper German I'd come to know. It was as if the speakers had rewritten the rules of the German language entirely. By that I mean my impression, along with others learning German, was that the language is notably conventional. It requires that one attain mastery of a whole slew of Nettlesome grammar rules which, if disobeyed, would immediately let a native speaker know that this person is not proficient in the language. And in a way, it's true. If you've ever looked up German declension tables, for example, on Google Images, you know how daunting and complex the language can be, especially for an English speaker who speaks something that has practically no inflection. There's also... Not as many cognates to English and German as there are in French, Spanish, and in Italian, for example. German's word order is dizzying, and the accent, too, is fairly difficult. And so as an English speaker learning German, it always seemed that you have to be really precise. And here was a certain group of German speakers disobeying the whole array of German rigid linguistic conventions. And that led me to ask, what even is a convention or a rule? There are slightly different words, but the result of obeying either is the same, that you defer to some authority's prescription of what is right or wrong. But who are these authorities? I often hear people talking about the correct way to use language. They talk as if there's a rule book for language, something like a US code of law for all things language. 
But you can't find that book anywhere. No library. No bookstore. Nowhere. It's non-existent. The truth is, even if language, class, and school will tell you that something is right or wrong, it's because that judgment of right or wrong is based on what speakers of that language use normally. It's an approximation, not because it is based on the word-for-word orders of some shadowy higher power. Now, let's take an example where one would actually be forgiven to think that an authority controls the nation's language. In France, the Académie Française is the nation's council, which deals with affairs on the usage of the French language. And so for nearly four centuries, they've been writing dictionaries of the French lexicon, treatises on French grammar, spelling out in very fine print what they consider right and wrong. They're an institution with elite heritage, they're run by the elites, passed on to the scions of elites. They've adamantly opposed regional languages spoken in France with the idea that French in its standard form is somehow measurably superior. And despite their efforts, the people babble on, a la themselves. Regional languages continue to be spoken vibrantly, and there's a French argot called Ferlon, used for many years by the French people as a form of resistance against institutions that control, or rather institutions that attempt to control. In Valon, French words are flipped on their ends. They are syllables inverted such that one unfamiliar with the slang would have to work to keep up with a conversation laden with Valon vocabulary. It's now used by young urban youths of the lower class, but it's spread to upper class youth as well, which really is the stuff of nightmares for the Académie Française elite. The lesson is clear. When you try to tell people the way to use language, the way they ought to speak, they won't listen, and that's for a good reason. Language is actually controlled by the people, not a single person nor a group of people, but actually all of us. In the development of language, the lunatics are running the asylum. But the caveat is that we're never actually lunatics for changing language. Linguistic innovations come out of nature and necessity. When the world around us changes, we have to adjust our way of interacting with it through language accordingly. Think about our texting language, for example, and the way that we've resigned formalities for stealthier, more casual written messages in a world that has a faster pace. There are the abbreviations, the slang, the emojis, the omission of words, and even the deliberate choice to uncapitalize words at the start of sentences which is actually a phenomenon so widespread, I think, that one could actually believe that phone keyboards don't capitalize by default. That brings us back to Keatsdeutsch. Keatsdeutsch is one of countless examples of human speakers speaking something other than what the majority blindly accepts as correct, when that correctness is often judged on a value system that doesn't have any real validity. It's a system often created by our biases, our misconceptions of how things really work. You can learn German in its most standard approximation, that is how roughly the average standard German speaker talks, by abiding to the conventions that you're taught in school. And that's perfectly fine. The goal is to be able to communicate with any German speaker, of course. Keatsdeutsch might violate many of these conventions, but it does so systematically. So in breaking conventions, it creates its own set of conventions, set forth by the 
emergence of all Keatsdorf speakers using the dialect and hashing out communicative kinks. It creates its own system. Keatsdorf is something entirely new and distinct from Standard German. Crucially, though, Keatsdorf speakers can use both Standard German and Keatsdorf, just as in the United States, speakers of Black English can switch between Standard English and Black English. You all know this as code switching. The question is then, why Keatsdorf in addition to Standard German, when both can equally well allow a speaker to communicate their ideas? That's one of the questions I seek to explore in this first series on Keatsdorf of the podcast. But there are many questions to answer, and they're important to me not only as a student of German and linguistics, but to me as an English speaker and as a human in this world. Keatsdorf represents our world's current moment in terms of language, a moment of globalization, digitization, and conversions. And the examination of Keatsdorf provokes questions of language contact, of society, of culture, of power, of intimacy, and identity. In this first series, I investigate Keatsdorf through conversations with linguists who will help us understand the ins and outs of the multi-ethnolect, but they'll also help us understand why we use language the way we do, and how language comes to be, and where language will go. This series is as much an examination of Keatsdorf as it is an examination of that all-encompassing object we call language through one tiny, though rich and revealing lens. Thank you for joining me on the first episode of Future Tongues and the first episode of the series on Keatsdorf. Stay tuned for the next episode. Music